0: You asked, we answered. Many of you have asked that each show on the Man of God Network be transitioned to its own RSS feed on iTunes or the podcast app that you use. We've heard your request. Each show on the Man of God Network is now available on its own unique RSS feed. This makes it easier to search for previous episodes, yet all of our shows are still connected on one channel. You can find this by searching the Man of God by CBT Seminary channel on iTunes. If you've enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing to each show on the Man of God Network channel as we move content over. And thanks for listening to the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry.
1: This morning we will look at how Christians can grow in piety or godliness. God commands us to grow in grace, he commands us to grow in faith, hope, and love, to grow in doing justice or giving others their due according to his commandments, wisdom, self-control, courage. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But how do we grow in these graces? Well, sometimes Christians aren't even aware they need to grow. True Christians can be, instead of growing, drifting. That's what was happening all through the book of Hebrews. They were drifting. They were becoming dull of hearing, but they were true Christians. so how do you know if you need to grow or not? Well, Thomas Watson mentions a few ways to know if you aren't growing. I think they're good. First, have you lost your spiritual appetite? People who are not growing, they don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They think they're doing okay, and they don't feel their need of the word or of the Lord They're drifting even from the thought of Christ. They've lost their spiritual appetite. Second, people who are not growing are becoming more and more worldly. Now, worldliness is sometimes misunderstood. It's not caring about temporal things. You're supposed to care about temporal things like family and marriage and children and job and possessions and so on. You have to care for what God has given to you in this world. But worldliness is caring about these things too much and living in the sins that the world approves of. So a worldly person spends his time thinking about vain things, worldly affairs. He he longs for, and he lives his life for temporal pleasure, for security, for position, for power, for possessions, instead of seeking the kingdom of God or else he conflates these worldly things with the kingdom of God and so justifies it all. Worldliness indulges the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Worldly people take their minds off of heaven and dig their comforts out of this world. We know our hearts are becoming worldly when we can hardly lift up our hearts to the Lord and when we don't long to be with him for eternity. So may I ask, is there any sense in which your heart is drifting into worldliness? Even true Christians can drift there. This isn't a question of whether you should doubt your salvation. At this point, the question is are you leaning into Christ and growing in His grace, or are you drifting? And the thing about drifting is the further you drift, the harder you get. And you don't realize how much you've drifted until you're further and further away. And then there are often gross outbreakings of sin, which are warnings and it can go even further and further. It's very dangerous to drift, but it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. True Christians drift. A third sign that someone is not growing in piety is that he's not troubled by his sin. When someone is not growing in grace, they don't see their sins as sinful. There was a time, maybe when even their smallest sins bothered them. The slightest... Rebellions against the Lord, covetousness, evil thoughts. This is what troubled Paul so much that led him to repentance. He saw his covetous heart. But now, this person who is drifting finds it much easier to sin. He sins without much guilt or regret, and only the greatest sins that have outward consequences bother him at all. And this person is becoming puffed up in pride. That's what happens. Pride blinds us to the sinfulness of our sins, and the Bible says pride comes before fall. In James 4 6, it says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. A proud person tends to have a a fault finding spirit. He doesn't easily admit wrong, He's harsh and defensive and resists correction. Be warned. If you are not growing in godliness, you are drifting from Christ, you're moving further and further away from him, and there is no static state before the Lord. You're either moving toward him or away. You're never neutral. Which is it? Well, maybe you find some evidences in your heart that you're not growing in godliness. What should you do? Beloved, there's hope for you. All is not lost. You have to believe this, though, that if you cry out to the Lord and you confess your sins and trust Him, He'll have mercy upon you. Be specific with your confessions, though. Confess your pride, murderous anger, your lust, your worldliness. Confess your lying, manipulative tongue, your laziness, your cowardice. Confess to Him your sins, to God. And then remember His greatness and His authority his power, his infinite glory, that he alone is all wise and good, the creator of all things, who upholds, sustains, directs, and governs everything in this world, that he is the great and good sovereign who sent his only son to come into this world of sinners, to die a wretched death, that our debts can be canceled, that we could be robed in his righteousness, and that God made you for himself You're his image. (laughs) If you use yourself for something you weren't made for, you'll be miserable in the end. It will all turn to ash. You'll kill yourself, the Bible says. You're made for him. And so how do you draw near to him? How do you grow in godliness? How do you become more pious? Will you apply yourself to the means of grace? This is what Christ has commanded And the means of grace are the word, the sacrament, the fellowship of the saints, and the prayers, centrally. Let me give you some qualities in someone who's growing in grace. This list comes partly from Joel Beakey. A growing desire to hear the word preached and study the Bible. Making good use of the Lord's Supper. Engaging frequently in faithful and sincere prayer fellowshipping with other Christians in love, serving them, building into their lives, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all the saints, keeping the whole Sabbath day holy unto the Lord, seeking continual repentance in light of Christ's great grace, practicing daily Bible reading and personal prayer, Learning to keep the Ten Commandments more and more from a heart of sincere love to God and other people. Growing in the virtues of true Christ-like character and the fruit of the Spirit. Maintaining godliness in your home, especially with your spouse, with your children, your brothers and sisters, your mother and father, and being faithful to family worship. Being involved in evangelism and missions, learning to practice mercy and to serve those in need, and reading edifying, theological, and devotional books for the nourishment of your mind and the soul of godliness. And above all, growing in grace means remembering Jesus, that he's full in your eyes. His gospel of grace, the hope of heaven, free reconciliation to God through Christ and the spirit of holiness who seals you for eternity and dwells in you to make you like Christ, to make you good, to form you into one who is set apart and holy and full of love to God and love to others, one who worships the Lord with all his life. Please turn in your Bibles with me if you will to Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. This is how we're to live. This is the best way to live. This is these are the means that God has given to us to grow. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Peter has just finished preaching a sermon. On Pentecost. And according to Robert Haldane, I haven't done the calculation on this myself, but he did it, so you can read his treatise on the Sabbath. Pentecost is an eighth-day Sabbath, which means a Sunday Sabbath. So the first gathering of the church was on Sunday, at the Church of Jerusalem on Sunday, and it was a Sabbath day. And he had just preached from the Old Testament, from Joel and from the Psalms, the Word of God and showed how it pointed to Jesus. And then he convicted them of their sin and called them to believe the promise of forgiveness, to repent and to receive baptism. And so here's what happened in verse 41. So those who received his word, that is they believed in him, were baptized and they were added that day, that means added to the church, that day about 3,000 souls And they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. They gathered in holy reverence and observed these ordinary means of grace. So consider first that they gathered on a Sunday Sabbath. You know, you have to be committed to keeping the Sabbath day holy to do this. Now, some would say, well, aren't just personal devotions, private devotions enough? Aren't they really more central? Like if I read my Bible and pray at home, isn't that really what's important? Can't I grow in Christ that well? It's certainly very important. But the whole Bible, the New Testament, represents the gathering of the church and the hearing of the word and the prayers and the fellowship of the saints and the observance of all the ordinances God has given to be central. Like if you read the New Testament letters, it's not about praying by yourself in private. Jesus says we're to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, but the New Testament letters are directed to the church. This is the primary means by which we are made godly if we apply them by faith. And so we must be committed to keeping the Sabbath day. In John 20, verse 19, Christ appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. Do you remember? He came through the door that was locked. He appeared to them on Sunday, the first day of the week, it says, and he, he, he preached himself and said, peace be with you. And then he was gone, and he appeared the next Sunday the same way in their midst and said the same thing, peace be with them, and preached himself to them. He was establishing a pattern of Lord's Day to Lord's Day. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week they were gathered together. So the apostles did what Jesus had patterned for them. And then 1 Corinthians 16:1 says, They were gathered together on the first day of every week. It, it wasn't. They tried to do it on Sunday when they could. It, they were gathered together. It says in Acts and First Corinthians 16, 1, on the first day of every week. Notice, day, not the first two hours. The first day of every week, and then Hebrews ten twenty five warns that we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Lord Jesus Christ uses the rhythm of Lord's day to Lord's day as a means of growing as people in piety. But it's not just coming not enough just to appear, to show up, to go through the ritual. I did my duty. I rendered my due to the Lord. We must lay hold of the word, of the prayers, of the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs by faith, looking unto Jesus. We cannot just sit here. If we do, it will be bad for us. We must lean in to what Christ has given and to what he has commanded. And I I must say, that we're not keeping the Lord's day if we just come to the morning service. There's a whole day belonging to the Lord. Now, listen, I understand some of you can't do that. That's okay. There's necessities. If you have a necessity, you drive a long distance, you're unable to attend a whole day, or acts of mercy are accepted according to Jesus in Matthew 12. But this is a holy convocation, So if you don't attend the the second service, I would just exhort you and encourage you to reconsider and avail yourself of all the means that Christ has given you on this day. Why wouldn't we enjoy a foretaste of heaven here on earth? Why wouldn't we do what Christ has called us to do and avail ourselves of all that he has given? This is the rhythm Lord's Day to Lord's Day, observing the means He's given us, and then also during the week, certainly not neglecting our private, personal devotion, the reading of the Word, prayer, family worship in our homes. That is also important, but it culminates in and is fueled by, and the central engine is the church, which is what the New Testament teaches And so let's look at what the church devoted itself to in Acts 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. Now, what did they teach? We're supposed to read the Word, certainly. I mean, in in church, you know, uh, Paul tells Timothy to give yourself to the public reading of Scripture. But they were teaching the Word. And how were they doing it? They, They taught the Bible and showed how it connected to Jesus. And then they applied it to the people. That's the whole pattern. They also looked at the last day. It was already happening now. Christ has come. He's coming again. Keep our eyes on eternal glory. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching Are you devoted to hearing the word of God preached and taught on the Lord's day? This is Christ's gift to us, it's one of the ways he feeds us. Scripture says the word of God is central. Romans 10.17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Christ teaches that his elect people, his sheep, believe and obey his word. In John 10.27, the Lord Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That means the sheep of Christ hear the voice of their shepherd and they believe him and they follow him. Not perfectly. After all, sheep get lost and they run off on their own. They do things that aren't intelligent, you know, but Christ comes and gets them and they do follow him and they go where he leads. First Peter 2.2 2 says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. How do you grow? Through the pure milk of the word. You know, if if you have been around an infant, you know how they long for milk, you know? That's how we're to long for the word, to cry out for it, to not be satisfied until we receive it. If you have an appetite for Christ's word, you'll long for it more and more. The way you develop an appetite is by feeding on it. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, This is the one to whom I will look. Who does God look to? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? not only because there is a fearfulness to it but also because psalm 2:11 says worship the lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling one way in which we tremble is to behold his greatness and he's so good and worthy that we tremble do you tremble at the sight of the beloved Enjoy, Like a, a bride or a groom on the wedding day, they can't help but tremble. This is how we tremble before the Lord. Be warned, though, that if you don't believe Christ's word when you hear it, your hearing will not benefit. You must believe. You have to try to understand and then believe. Because Hebrews 4 verse 2 says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You have to unite faith to your hearing. Now many old authors pointed out that people listen to sermons differently. I wonder how you listen to sermons. There's four categories here. Which one do you fall in? Some people listen to sermons like sponges. So they sit and they just soak it all in. They soak in the good and the bad. Whatever the preacher says, they accept it because the preacher said it. and They don't think about it. They just turn off their minds and they drink down what they hear from whoever they hear it. That's not good. It's actually very dangerous because it leaves you open to being deceived. First Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So don't listen like a sponge. But secondly, other people listen to sermons like an hourglass The words of the sermon pass right through them. As it is said, it goes in one ear and out the other for some. They hear what is preached and they think about it for a moment. And then after they've thought about it for a moment, they forget what they've heard. And they go away and they don't do what they've heard or believe what they've heard or even try to remember what they've heard. And James 1, verses 22 to 24 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. That's the hourglass that the word just passes right through. Still other people listen, thirdly, like a coffee filter. So they, they, what they do is they sift out the grains while all that delicious coffee just drips right through them into the carafe below. They hold on to the worst parts of the sermon. They listen to criticize a sermon. They find one thing wrong with it, and they hang on to that. Or they might find a list of wrong things and they love recounting those wrong things to themselves. This kind of hearer feels quite self-righteous that he's right, the preacher was wrong, which happens, by the way. But they are avoiding Christ because they feel superior to what was preached, which means they don't need to take the truth of Christ to heart because they found an error And that's the problem. And they have a more and more critical spirit. Remember the Pharisees, what they were doing? They were always trying to catch Jesus in saying one thing wrong. They could just get him to say one wrong thing. They'd latch onto that one thing and remember it and use it against him. So don't be a filter but third, God's faithful people listen to sermons like a sifting pan. You know, maybe back during the gold rushes, people would sometimes go to the banks of a river, and they would take those sifting pans, and they would pick up some of the, the silt. Was that what it's called? So, yeah, silt, and the bank of the river, and they would sift it to find gold. And anything they found was valuable, maybe a flake, maybe, you know, a small nugget, They might even find a big nugget in there and they would would sift it. And that's how we should listen to sermons, eagerly trying to hear where Christ is in there, trying to see what's good and hold on to what the good is. Let the rest just fall right through. Hold on to the good, the true, the valuable because you're a newborn babe longing for pure spiritual milk. You just want the milk. Give me the milk. And you take that and you drink it down and you feed upon it That's how we should listen, eagerly, hungry to feed on what is good. And how can you listen this way? Well, you work to remember it whenever you hear anything you need. Did you learn something about biblical doctrine you didn't know? Hold on to that. Were any of your sins rebuked? You felt it. Did you then forget it later, or did you hold on to that? Did Christ's word give you a command to obey Remember that. Did you hear any of Christ's sweet promises that you need for life and comfort, and it comforted you then, and then you go away and forget it? No. Hold on to that comfort. Remember it. Preach the gospel back to yourself over and over. Marinate in it. Live and dwell there in the gold of his promises. Did you learn more about the character and the nature of Jesus Christ and the great God of heaven? Dwell before his face. Meditate upon the truth of God's word. You might write them down. You know, some people remember differently. Some can just hear something and they remember it and they just keep thinking of it. Others, they love to take copious notes. That's great if you do it. The Bible never commands anyone to take notes. But maybe you'll find that if you just heard one thing valuable, you just jot down a couple of words, and that'll jog your memory. You can go back and remember that. But whatever it takes, hold on to what is good. Beloved, the Word of God is the firm foundation for your life. The foundation is not found in your opinions, your studied conclusions, your feelings, your duties, all those things are chaff. They'll, they'll give way. The firm foundation for you to think rightly and to be stable in this world and to live before the Lord, to know his love and grace and live for his glory is the word of the living God. Hold it fast. But don't just try to remember the truths of the sermon. The point of a sermon is not... To teach you something. That's part of the point. But it's not. You know, if, if you were to hear a sermon somewhere that was great and you wrote down all your notes and you took your notes and you learned so much, it was so deeply interesting, you put it in your nightstand in the drawer and shut the drawer, went to sleep and there it sat, it'd be a total failure. The point of a sermon is a means of grace to worship. to be be conformed more to Christ and worship now and then worship when you go about your week. The end is worship, and worship is not a means to any other thing. It is the end. Joy in God, love to him, fearing him, trembling before him. The point of a sermon is to take Christ himself to heart. The very reason we exist in this world is to be conformed to him for our joy and his glory and he feeds us. Man does not live by bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Do you believe that? You have to feed on him and you feed on him by believing his promises, by submitting yourself to his commands, by looking into his very face through his revelation in Scripture. And so the first thing we see here is that like the Jerusalem church, you must devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, which is the first means of grace, the primary means of grace in the church. But second, Acts 2.42 says to devote yourself to the fellowship. Now that word fellowship is a Greek term koinonia, and it refers to Sharing in the graces that we have together in Christ. You know, some some maybe treat church like a preaching station. You know, where you come, you hear the sermon, you leave. It's no different than maybe getting a sermon on the internet and then being done with it. But look what this says. They devoted themselves, yes, to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship. Not just fellowshipping with Christians wherever I might find them, but this, the church's fellowship of the number. Christians, covenanted together. So what is, what is fellowship? Well, it's necessary to grow in piety. If we want to grow in godliness, hearing sermons isn't enough. You know, if you, if you were to want to grow in godliness, and you just listen to great sermons or read all the great sermons of the past, you would, you would sour. You would not grow in godliness. The church is God's means. Fellowship is indispensable. The community of faith is absolutely required. So what is this fellowship? I want to give you a few things. It begins with sharing in sound doctrine. We have to start here. Because a church is a covenanted body of believers where their unity is the word of God. Jesus is our unity. You know, whatever unifies a church is its God. What holds us together is what we worship. But we're Christ's church and he's our God and so his word must hold us together. We share in him and his word His word is the foundation of our unity. That means it's not family relationships. It's not how well we have loved each other or do love each other fundamentally. It's not our feelings. It's not Southern American culture. It's not how we line up on every debated issue of the day. Fellowship means sharing in Christ and him crucified and in his perfect word as the center and foundation of all our unity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, that can't mean they had to have the same opinion about what to wear on Monday, you know? That's not what this is talking about. It means that you agree on the apostolic doctrine, That you agree on who Jesus is, what he has done, what he commands. And then fellowship and sound doctrine gives us unity, but with that it gives us Christian liberty too. These are two sides of the same coin, that if we're unified in the biblical truth, then we will love and accept Christians who disagree with us on secondary matters and we won't try to hound them into conformity but we receive them and we love them because they believe the same God and Jesus that we do the same truth that we do it means we don't judge others by individual con- convictions in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things love and so first of all fellowship means we share in sound doctrine. We share that it's the, the center of our unity. But second, fellowship in the sh- church means sharing in life and love for one another together in relationship with each other. In Acts 2, 40, verse 45, fellowship means loving each other so that we're willing to even sell property and give to those who have need, that we look at the needs among us and we try to meet physical needs. but If we look at the whole New Testament, we see that fellowship means sharing our very lives with each other. It's a community. Listen listen to some of the New Testament passages that teach us how to treat one another in the church. Now, as I read these, know that all of these commands are given to the church. So some Christians misapply this. They think it just applies to any Christian you might meet, and it does in a secondary way, but it's principally given for within a particular local church so be devoted to one another in brotherly love to the church of rome chapter 12 verse 10 honor one another above yourselves romans 12:10 live in harmony with one another romans 12:16 Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Colossians 3, 13. How can we do that? Because we're forgiven. If we're washed in the blood of Jesus, that our debts are canceled before God, and if that brother who offended us, his debts are canceled before God too, can we not cancel debts against each other, and forgive. Admonish one another. We should love each other enough to tell each other the truth when we need to hear it. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. 1 Thessalonians 3.12. To the church of Thessalonica, make your love overflow. How can you do that? Well, Christ has imputed his righteousness to you. And what that means is that God treats you like Jesus deserves to be treated and gives you everything Jesus deserves. His love overflows. And if Christ has treated us this way by clothing us in his righteousness, how can we not treat each other that way with abundant love? Do not slander one another. James 4, 11. Do not grumble against each other. James 5, 9. Confess your sins to each other. Now, this doesn't say drag the sins out of everybody. Make them confess them to you. Some, there's all kinds of confused notions about things like accountability groups and holy clubs and small groups. This was all tried. None of this is ordained by, by Christ. What's ordained by Christ is the church and we freely, when we trust brethren, confess our sins to one another, who then can bear our burdens with us and pray for us and walk with us. <clears throat> pray for one another. James 5 16. Love one another deeply from the heart. So, not just bring a meal when you're sick. Yes, do that, but do it in love from the heart, with sincerity. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 1 Peter 4.10, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Pride is a killer. Self-righteousness, critical spirit, looking down noses at one another, fault-finding, Never being wrong, always finding fault, kills love and unity and fellowship. This says, clothe yourselves with humility, which is just believing the truth about yourself. (laughs) You deserve to go to hell, and Jesus completely rescued you, not because of you, and me too. What do we have to be proud of? We can clothe ourselves with humility if we believe the gospel. There's no way you can grow or I can grow in piety unless we grow in love for other Christians in the local church. Listen to what Jesus said. This is a positive law of the new covenant that Jesus gives about what he's doing to form the, the local church in John thirteen thirty five, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in all these ways. What is the proof that we're actually followers of Jesus, that we are with a church and loving them and being loved by them in community? And if we isolate ourselves off on our own, it does not go well for us. So that's secondly. Fellowship means sharing in life and love for one another. It's necessary to piety. Third, fellowship means sharing in Christian friendship you know, the Bible speaks quite a bit about friends. Just look up the word friend. Find it fall out of everywhere. In, in the Proverbs, through the Old Testament, the New Testament, you know, David and Jonathan are the classic friends. They, they loved each other from their very souls. They even made a covenant of love, of friendship with each other. Jesus was close friends with Peter, James, and John. Paul and Timothy were close friends. Are you are you building into friendships like that in the church? Friendship means deeply trusting and sharing your life with someone. Now you need to pick your friends carefully, even in the church. But you should pick friends. Christian friends speak warmly of the Bible with each other. They delight in telling each other about what Christ is teaching them, how they're growing, how they're struggling. But they don't just talk about the Bible. Why? Because they're sharing life with each other. And life is all the stuff, right? Under Christ, yes, but they talk about their thoughts with each other, their hearts. They entrust each other with this because they know their friends fear God and won't betray them. Friends also really listen to each other. They're quick to listen. They respect each other. They care what the other one wants and what the other one thinks. They're sincerely interested in hearing what the other one is feeling, what they have accomplished. They're not only interested in whatever their mind happens to be thinking about, And speaking their own mind they really want to know what's going on in the other they enjoy all of life together they can have fun together in a godly way they can laugh together laughter is medicine for the heart according to the bible and i don't think it means they were reading the bible together and then laughed maybe sometimes but i think it means they just enjoyed each other's company we're talking about life and they laughed Friends have common cause in life as well. It's not just a relationship, it's a relationship with a purpose. That's what holds a friendship together. Friends have a common goal of living life to the glory of God and Jesus. That's what Christian friends have, to be conformed to his likeness. But Ralph Erskine warns this, beware of your graceless friends. Friends. Their carnal walk and conversation may rob you of all spirituality in half an hour and spoil good communion in two minutes. Oh, sirs, be little in their company as you can. And when you have to be with them, let your heart be always giving a stolen look to Christ. Be warned who you make your friend. That's the third thing, though, is that the church is for friendship. Fellowship is friendship, it's a means of godliness. Fourth, fellowship means sharing in a mutual promise to each other. Do you know that's what the church is? We've committed to walk together, it's a covenant. We need to be church members under the church's discipline and her officers and receiving all the means of grace and living our lives among believers to grow in true godliness. Without the church, we will become more and more proud. You know, we live in the day of the internet. There are these internet Christians. They love to argue and fight and debate and curse each other and slaughter every bad idea. And and what is that? They sure know a lot, but they're profoundly arrogant. You can't remain proud if you live in a community faithfully. The community won't let you. It's by living together that we learn what love is and how to love each other and even what it means to be loved, some of us who don't know what that is. We learn love with each other. We can't grow properly without the church. And so if you're coming to public worship but you're not a church member, you're not building into the lives of the saints, I would just exhort you, you're missing much of what Jesus has given as a means of grace to get through this wilderness, finally over the Jordan and into the promised land. And so fellowship among church members is sharing in sound doctrine, sharing in love and possessions, sharing in friendship, sharing in a mutual promise to each other, covenanted together in the church. That's the second means of grace, fellowship. The third means of grace in Acts 2.42 is the breaking of bread. Now, without making an argument, big argument, for, this is the Lord's Supper. There's a definite article. If I say we're going to take the supper, it's different than saying let's have supper tonight, right? Same word can be used in two different ways, but this is the Lord's Supper. Well, how do we take it? Well, we've looked at it a couple of weeks ago, so I won't get into this deeply, but we take it in remembrance of Christ. We take it to commune and fellowship with Jesus, but I want to focus on this, 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What kinds of self-examination should you do at the Lord's Supper? Let me give you some things to consider maybe. Are you sanctifying the Sabbath day or are you squandering it? Are you honoring your father and mother, including all other authorities that God has put you under, or do you have a spirit of rebellion and sedition? the fifth commandment. Are you slow to anger and ready to forgive? Are you holding grudges against people God has put into your life to love? Forgiveness, it has been said, is not putting off anger to a later date. It's canceling the debt. Are you giving your mind to lust and impure thoughts? Do you defile your body by giving your members to sinful pleasure? Are you giving others their due, beginning with your family, your parents, your spouse, your children, but also your church and among your co-workers? Are you keeping the Ten Commandments from a sincere heart of love to the people God gives you to serve in all of your callings? Do you speak the truth plainly or... Do you manipulate, spread rumors, raise suspicions about others? Do you countenance, gossip, and slander? Or do you reject it without two or three credible witnesses and biblical due process? Do you make assumptions about others and form judgments without knowing the facts and with limited information? And after examining yourself before the Lord's Supper, Whatever sins you find, you confess them to the Lord who stands ready to forgive with a full heart. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. He'll receive you. His bloody death on the cross purges your guilt. That's what the supper means above all. Your debts are canceled. His perfect robes of righteousness clothe you. And then in light of his great love and grace, you resolve to repent of your sins because he's a good Lord. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's his oath to you to save you, to keep you to the uttermost. It's the covenant vow of Christ, but it's also your reflexive, re-stipulation of vowing to him. I'm gonna live under your kingship, I will submit to your rule. So the third means of grace is the breaking of bread. And then fourthly and briefly, Acts 2.42 is the prayers. So here again, the prayers. This isn't talking about just personal prayer. This is the prayers of the church together. It's not private prayer. This is prayer together. You know, prayer in a church is essential to our worship, to our growth in godliness, to all the means of grace functioning properly. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Now, you may know this, but at Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, when he was up preaching on a Sunday morning, do you know what was happening in the basement? There we were saints down there praying. And Spurgeon believed that was the strength and the power of the whole church because God is the power. It's not what we do. It's not our exercising of these means that animates them with life and strength to make us godly. It's God who does it. We, so we pray Lord, send your spirit, strengthen your people, enliven our faith. Make your means effective in the hearts of your own. So prayer is essential for the life and the health of the church, but what should we be praying for? Just a few things. First, we should be praying for the ministry and the mission of the church. The church in Acts prayed for the word of God to have its effect and for boldness to proclaim the word. Do you remember in Acts 4 where the authorities commanded the apostles to stop preaching the word on pain of punishment. In Acts Acts 4.24, it says this, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And then in verse 29, they all prayed together. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants with all boldness that they may speak your word. We should be praying that for each other. Some of you are in places that are really hard to speak the word. Some school situations, boy, you'll be outcast if you actually speak speak the word. Some workplaces, if you actually speak the word in love and with boldness, you might lose your job. We should be praying for boldness, for each other to proclaim the word. Paul understood everything about his ministry depended on prayer. In Romans 15, verse 30, Paul says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he begs them. And through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Just personal, on a personal note, there is no more important thing that you can do for your pastor than pray for him. When people tell me they pray for me, you have no idea what that means. I feel my need. I beg for your prayers. I serve you on Sunday morning. Would you serve me by praying for me? I need you to pray for me. Please pray. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. And so we should be praying for the ministry and the mission of the church. Second, we should be praying together against temptation and praying for each other that will grow in godliness. Matthew 26, verses 38 to 41, Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. That's what the disciples were doing. We need to be praying with and for each other against Satan, the world, and the flesh, these powerful enemies, not stronger than Christ, but nonetheless strong, praying that the Lord would thwart them and that we would grow in the grace of Jesus. We have to pray if we want to fight well, and we fight this fight together. Third, we should pray for each other's temporal needs and physical afflictions. In James 5, verses 14 to 16, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And if the elders are to do it, why am the church supposed to be doing it too? Of course they are. We're to be praying for each other's sicknesses and needs because what is a sickness properly understood? We're all gonna die. Is the ultimate goal that we'll never ever be sick or die, no. The goal is that we'll walk through that properly. Yes, that the Lord would have mercy and heal the temporal pain and the affliction. That's mercy. We pray for that. But the real prayer Is that we can hold fast to Jesus through this trial and honor him. And so, those are the means of grace that God has ordained for the church to grow in piety. Will we resolve to devote ourselves to these means? Will you? Like they did. They said they devoted themselves to these means. Will you devote yourself? We grow in piety as we assemble with the church each Sabbath day, Lord's day to Lord's day, laying hold of the means He's given us by faith. None of us does this perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. You don't. But Christ is merciful and forgives. And he gives us his spirit and he calls us to grow, to do this, to lean into Jesus for our good and joy. It's the best way to live in this world. It brings him glory. And so let's run this race together looking to Jesus who's given us the guarantee of eternal life. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for The means you've given us for the church, for Christ, the hope of heaven. Lord, help us not to neglect these means you have given to be faithful while we're here gathered on the Lord's Day, but also at home and in private, that we would not neglect prayer, that we would not neglect the reading of your word or family worship, that we would draw near to you during the week, and then this would culminate in Lord's Day worship, and we would be further fueled and strengthened to continue all week long. Father, help us not to take our eyes off of Jesus, Christ and him crucified and risen, the hope of poor sinners like us, and help us, Lord, to be strengthened and nourished by his grace, for his glory, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit CBTSeminary.org.